Chapter Eleven of After World's End by Jack Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End, Chapter Eleven: The Girl of Earth. Zarek Um looked sadly at the spoonful of raw synthetic alcohol left in the flask from his hip and gave it to Kel Aaron. The Earthman emptied it into his palm, gently detached the stiffly clinging sandbat from his shoulder, and held it over the reeking liquor. The bright, broken body stirred weakly, and it sucked at the fluid. Setsy, Kell implored, "'what is it you have to tell? Is it Pharrell?' The sandbat was silent, sucking avidly at the alcohol. I saw that it was gravely injured. Two of its six flat limbs were gone, and over half its remaining body the iridescent scales had been fused into a dull, glassy mass. "'Setsy's hurt! Poor Setsy's hurt!' She's dying!" the whirring voice came faintly. "'Help her, Kel! Give her grog!' "'Tell me,' demanded Kel Aaron, "'where is Varel? Do you know?' The bright, many-colored fragment of the silicic being clung to his big hand. The solitary dark eye in the middle of its vivid pattern stared up at him sorrowfully. "'Setsy's come a long way to tell you, Kel.' The melodious warbling was so low, beneath the thundering chaos of the robot's assault, that we had to bend intently forward to hear. "'Oh, what a long and dreadful way! For she is injured, Kel, oh, so sorely! And the machines rule all the planets she could find but this. But those evil machines, so blackly evil, they destroy all life, and they have no grog for Setsy. The Earthman shook the little shining being and gazed impatiently into its single eye. "'But Varel, where is she?' "'Oh, Kel,' sobbed that faint, liquid voice, "'don't be angry with poor Setsy, for she has come so far to tell you, Kel. She had flown all the way from dead Ledros. She's crossed scores of light-years of hostile space. Wounded and tired and all alone, she came to tell you, Kel. Tell me what? Bright membranes fluttered. Like some incredible diamond-winged moth, the sandbat lifted briefly from his hand. It dropped back and clung. Setsy's come to tell you that she found Varel, Kel, when she was out alone in space, on the long, long way from Ledros, Kel, her mind found Varel's. Found Varel all alone, Kel. Oh, all alone, Kel. And so in need of aid. For the robots hunt her, Kel. And she has lost the stone. Where is she? whispered Kel Aaron. Please, Setsy, where? She's on Mildoon, Kel, came that tiny whirr. Setsy found her on Mildoon, where we are. She's been on Black Mistoon, Kel. Malgarth held her there. Oh, Kel, that's a fearful place. Guarded Mistoon, where old Malgarth hides. But she escaped it, Kel. She came to Maldoon. She tried to enter Aknor, for Aknor is the last city, Kel. But the robots turned her back. She fled into the desert, Kel. For her geodesic sled was wrecked. She's hiding in the desert, Kel, in the grim gray desert of Kanat. The robots hunt her there. She's in danger, Kel. Oh, what black danger! Where? Can you show us? Setsy'll guide you, Kel. She'll show you, if she lives, Kel. For poor old Setsy's dying. Her long, long days are done. Soon she'll join those other two. She'll try to show you, Kel, before she's gone. But she must have a little rum. Setsy's come so far, Kel, her wound's so grave. She'd die now, Kel, without her rum. And the sandbat stiffened suddenly on the earthman's hand, like some strange diamond-dusted jewel. Come, shouted Kel Aaron, we've got to go to Varel. We started back toward the park where we had left the berryhorn. It was a march through pandemonium. The robot fleet still hailed death into the city, and the metal invaders still swarmed through the gap in the northward defenses. 
One red mighty ship had fallen across our route. Its mechanical crew survived. It was a mile-long fortress of the enemy, within the city. Flaming rays and fearful explosions met a desperate attempt to storm it. And a metal column came to its aid, led by the trim, silver-winged new robots. A sluggish, creeping mountain of purple-shining gas blocked our progress. Dim-seen men within it shrieked and died and flowed into black, thick liquid. We took masks from the dead without and plunged into it. Kel Aaron led the way, clutching the thin bright fragment of Setsi. Jaron Rock stalked beside him, tall and dark and implacable. Zarakum was very sober again, green behind his mask. Wizened little Rogo Nug was missing. But he rejoined us suddenly, triumphantly, displaying a great bundle of the rust-colored roots of the Gunaroon. He had raided the hoarded stock of a wealthy trader. We came to the tiny ship, half buried in debris, but unharmed. It carried us upward again, through the glare and din of death. The doomed city dropped beneath, a greenish, red-struck, thunder-shaken storm-cloud on the dark face of the planet. We turned eastward toward the vast, flat desert region of Kanat. Zarakum opened his last treasured bottle of rum. It revived the stiffened sandbat, but feebly. Hurry, Kel, came its faint trill. Oh, hurry, for Varel is in danger, and Setsy may die before she can show you the way. Hurry, hurry, and find more rum for Setsy. Kel Aaron held his ear close above the feebly vibrating membrane. Setsy's voice had become too faint for the rest of us to hear. He relayed her directions to Jaron at the controls. The land beneath us had been desolated by the victorious robots ruthlessly. Buildings had been burned, masonry blasted, life blotted from field and forest with poison sprays. There remained only a sere wilderness of barren soil and naked stone. In the universe of the triumphant robots, life would be exterminated. In that canyon! The voice of Cal Aaron was tense and dry. Beyond the plain! He laid his ear back upon the bright, crystalline thing on his hand, and Jaron dropped our little craft into a vast, rugged gorge. Dark, jagged walls tumbled down, red and brown and black, swallowing the silver filament of a buried river. Here and there, however, in some inaccessible crevice, I saw some tiny glint of precious green, some bit of grass or shrub that had escaped the robots. Life was yet a stubborn thing. The berry-horns slipped around dark, fantastic battlements of age-weathered stone, and passed the grim towers that guarded a tributary gorge. Something flashed, then, on a narrow ledge ahead, and then the sand-bat fluttered briefly on the hand of Kel Aaron. "'Oh, there she is!' I heard the whirring trill. "'There's your Varel, Kel, your lovely Varel, Kel, and the frightful things that stalk her!' That sad, solitary eye seemed to cloud and darken. Now it's farewell, Kel. Oh, forever farewell to all the long, long life that Setsi's lived. The sobbing warble was almost too faint to hear. There'll be no more grog for Setsi. And she stiffened abruptly on the Earthman's hand. Here, the eyes of Zarakum glistened wetly, and he offered his bottle. Give her rum, Kel, all of it. No, Cal Aaron shook his head. I think Setsy's dead. Hard and fragile as some broken toy of blown glass, the solicic being lay on his trembling palm. The queer still fragment of a gorgeous crystalline flower, green and purple and scarlet and blue. Queer, muttered Jaron from his levers, to think that she had lived since man was born on earth, and now that she is dead. But we had no more thought just then for Setsi. Kel Aaron was already pointing through the ports, shouting. I saw a weary human figure stagger across the ledge ahead and drop behind a boulder. A bright ray stabbed and stabbed again. And I saw two bright graceful things wheeling and diving above her, like silver hawks. Two of the new robots. It's Varel! Kel Aaron was sobbing. This time, really, Varel! His lean hands swept Jaron back from the controls, 
hurled the berryhorn into a reckless dive. And he began to hum the chorus of his old song, Till I find her, or I die. The deadly velocity of that unexpected dive, the deadly skill of the Earthman at the controls, caught one of the winged robots square on the nose of the berryhorn, smashed it to bright fragments. The Saturnian tumbled up into the gun turret to reach our little baritron projector, but the second metal thing had already fled up the gorge. It was gone between two pillars of time-carved stone before Kell could turn the ship again. It will give them the alarm, he muttered. Then his voice was choked with joy. But, Farrell, we have found her. He dropped our little ship lightly on the ledge and leapt out through the valve. The girl swayed to her feet and stared at him incredulously. Her young body showed the blue pinch of want. She was ragged, scratched, bruised. A heavy, clumsy-looking cathode gun, a weapon she must have taken from the robots, was clutched in her thin hands. Yet for all that she was beautiful. I could see the lovely Varel Aaron that Kel Aaron had loved and surrendered in that hidden valley on the earth for her hollowed eyes were blue and her hair was a spun-gold tangle, and her tanned face still had a lean, honest grace. She came limping very slowly to meet Kell. The heavy weapon fell from her hands. A queer, stricken wonder had stiffened her face. She reached out a trembling hand, touched his shoulder, his lips, and a slow, transcendent joy illuminated her features. "'Kell,' she said softly, "'you've come.' The Earthman moved hungrily to take her in his arms, but she withdrew. All the joy fled from her face, leaving it blank and gaunt with pain. "'The stone, Kel,' she cried bitterly, "'I've lost the stone. Malgarth has it still in his guarded temple on Black Mistoon.'" End of chapter 11《Chapter Twelve of After World's End by Jack Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End, Chapter Twelve The Fastness of Melgarth. Knowing that the robots would soon be after us, we left the great planet Meldoon and fled again into the wastes of space. When we had given her a little to eat and to drink, for the robots had left nothing in this land to sustain any living thing, Varel Aaron whispered her story. Jaren stood by the controls, scanning the telescreen for inevitable pursuit. Little Rogo Nug was tending his hard-driven converters. Zarek Um, rattling pans in the galley, was cooking up some delicacy for the famished girl. Pale and thin from all her hardships, but yet beautiful, she lay on a narrow bunk. Kel Aaron and I stood beside her, and the Earthman grasped her hand. "'We saw the earth flung into the sun,' said Kel Aaron, "'and the fleet of Gugan Kull destroying all who sought to escape. A dreadful time!' His voice was husky. "'We hardly dared hope for you, Varel.' The girl's blue eyes looked a long time up at his face, in them a blend of joy and dread that somehow wrenched the heart. She caught a deep, sobbing breath at last, and whispered, "'It's been a long time, Kel, a long, long time, since we herded goats in the hidden valley and climbed to the eagle's nest. Since I was chosen custodian and you went away to be a rover of space. Since—' Her whisper caught. "'Since the end of the earth.' "'Tell me,' the earthman bent closer. "'What happened?' From the observatory on the peak, she breathed, we saw the fleet come. All the planet was riven with the forces that checked it in its orbit. The sky was shadowed by day and luridly bright by night. Quakes and tidal waves drove us to the uplands. Soon it was clear that the earth indeed was doomed. Then the warders opened the cave where the ship of escape had always been kept provisioned and ready against discovery. A crew was chosen by lot, and I went aboard with the stone. The earth had already dropped past Venus when the last night fell. We tried to run up the cone of shadow, 
but a magnetic ray caught us and the fleet was warned. We tried to fight, to fly. Her eyes closed a moment and her thin face was rigid with pain. It was no use. We were the prey Melgarth had sent them to hunt. We were brushed with a baritron beam. She gulped and her hand went tense in Kells. I woke up in a hospital room on Gugan Kull's flagship, with a humming robot nurse bending over me. All the warders, all the people I had ever known but you, Kell, and I knew only that you had been lost ten years in space. They all were dead, and the stone had been taken from me." Kell Aaron touched her pale brow softly. And what then, Varel? When I could walk, Robots took me from the room and up to Gugan Kull. He laughed and made the robots drag me to a port, and I saw the end of the world. A tiny dark circle splashed in the sun and was gone. The earth, gone. Then I was put on a tender ship of the space police. I saw no more human beings, Kel, but only whirring, clicking, clattering robots staring at me with cold blue lenses that had no feeling. She shuddered on the bunk. A world of machines, without any voices, any laughter, any emotion you could understand. It was dreadful, Kel, horrible. He caught her trembling hand again, waited. The robot police took me to some agency of the corporation. Her dry, weary whisper resumed. They put me on a larger ship that was laden with the loot of planets that the robots had vanquished. That carried me to some other world. The robot nurses drugged me as we landed. When I came to, we were on another ship out in space again. That ship took me to Mistoon. She lay motionless for a long time, then with her eyes closed again. Her breath was a faint dry sobbing sound. Softly, the Earthman brushed the glistening tangle of yellow hair back from her forehead. "'Miss Dune?' he asked at last. "'What's it like, Varel? The blue eyes opened, somber pools of dread. "'Don't ask me, Kel,' she whispered. "'I can't endure to talk of black Miss Dune. Not now. No more than I must. Malgar's there.' It has been his hidden fortress for half a million years. It's guarded well. I think I'm the first human being to escape it, if any had been taken there before me. I did it only because I had to find you, Kel. Had to. She clutched his hand again and sighed. But still, Malgarth has the stone on Mistoon. He has preserved it, trying to find in it the secret of his own mortality. I saw it once while they were making that... that copy of me." She shuddered again. The stone? Urgency tensed the Earthman's voice. Still it has the power to destroy Malgarth? The golden head nodded on the bunk. Still it holds the ancient secret that Berryhorn entrusted to it. And now, at last, it is willing to strike, for clearly no other recourse is left. The shadow of the stone came to me before I escaped, and begged for aid to strike. It begged me to send you, Kell, and Berryhorn. Berryhorn, who it told me had returned to crush his old creation. It foretold that I should find you on Meldoon, and it aided me to plan the escape. Dark with wonder, her blue eyes came briefly to my face. And you are Berryhorn, she breathed. Maker of Malgarth. Well, it's time you returned. Still, the shadow waits within the stone. But it won't endure for long after Malgarth's science has got its secret. Kel Aaron was asking, You escaped from Mistoon? How? The girl's eyes went back to him. I followed the shadow's plan, she whispered. It showed me how to snatch the cathode gun from the robot guard who brought me food, how to escape through the long black corridors of Malgarth's temple, how to reach the geodesic sled that was waiting for one of his silver-winged robot commanders. There was pursuit, but the ship was very swift. 
and I had to reach you, Kel. The Earthman then bent over her tensely. You did. And his voice snapped with the question, Can you guide us back to Miss Stoon, Varel? Do you know the way? Faintly, she nodded again. It's a long, strange way, Kel, but I can try. For we must reach the stone before it is destroyed. Or, Kel Aaron put in grimly, before we are. Then I venture to ask an anxious question. If this stone has the power to destroy Malgarth, I asked, why doesn't it destroy him? If it were as simple as that. The girl's somber, curious eyes came to me again. The ages must have fogged your memory, Berryhorn. The stone has the secret of Malgarth's doom, yes, but it has no power to act alone. The shadow can only guide its human helpers. That is why there were custodian and warders." Her head shook gravely. No, Berryhorn, the stone can never strike at Malgarth unless we arrive to aid it. Red stars followed us again, the repulsors of pursuing robots. But Kel Aaron, singing a gay new song of the return of Berryhorn and the vengeance of the old Dundara stone, drove our tiny ship through a dark asteroid cluster. The ponderous cruisers of the fleet were delayed in finding safe passage through those black hurtling islands of space. We gained a little margin of time. And then, with Varel for a guide, Geron turned the Berryhorn toward the secret world of Malgarth's lair. It was toward the great horse's head nebula in Orion that she directed us, that strange ink-black silhouette against the stars that had so puzzled the astronomers of my own day. Twice again we evaded the red stars that pursued, and at last the girl guided us into the dark peril of the stellar cloud. Vast beyond comprehension, it was a lightless cosmic desert of drifting dust and hurtling rocks and plunging planetary bodies. On all the space charts it was marked Dangerous Impenetrable. All shipping was warned to keep two light-years clear of its dark fringes. But Malgarth, it seemed, had found a safe path through its perils half a million years ago. With Varel's aid we found that path and followed it, and all the stars were lost in that cloud of universal darkness, even the crimson stars that had pressed so close behind us. "'I think we have left them,' said Varel Aaron for even the most of the robots do not know the dark way we go. But there are others enough waiting for us. Miss Dune is guarded well." That was a strange passage. There was no light, not even any glow of rare nebulium. There was only the pattern of unseen magnetic fields to guide us, only fancy to picture the dark walls of death beside us. Once a frightful hail of meteoric fragments, penetrating even the deflector fields, battered the tiny ship deafeningly. The guiding field potentials had shifted since she passed, Farrell said despairingly. We were lost in that sea of darkness. But Kel Aaron took the controls and brought us safely out of the meteor swarm, and the pale anxious girl, studying the dials, presently found her bearings again. The berryhorn slipped ahead down that unseen passage and at last there was light ahead. A dull red, ominous glow. "'See the red,' Varel whispered. "'That is the zone of destroying radiation that Malgarth set up to guard Mistoon, a spherical field of force. The black planet is within it.' The crimson shone murkily through clouds of nebular dust. Dark rivers of hurtling stony fragments drew deadly curtains across it, but we came at last into the more open center of the nebula and dropped toward that gigantic globe of somber red. The force field is a billion miles in diameter, Varel told us. It acts to repulse or disintegrate all matter that approaches. Thus it serves to guard Mistoon from stray fragments of the nebula, as well as from such guests as ourselves. How can we pass it? the Saturnian pilot asked. The ships of Malgarth have coils that set up a neutralizing field," she told him. The craft on which I escaped had such a unit, but I didn't learn the design. 
The only way is to hit it at full power and hope. I don't know. Jaron studied a row of dials and shook his swarthy head. From what the analyzers show, I don't know. Humming some gay ballad of space, the yellow-haired Earthman stepped lightly to the control bars. I'll take over, Jaron, he said. We've got to go through. A brief consultation with the girl, a hasty check of field intensities, and he called to Rogo Nug to push his converters to full power. The whole ship sang to the musical hum of the engines, and the berry horn plunged toward that crimson ball. It expanded before us, against the dark angry clouds of the nebula, like the glowing sphere of some giant sun. And its barrier forces, I knew, could be as deadly as the incandescent gases of a Betelgeuse or an Antares. The Earthman stood crouched grimly over the controls. The last girl of Earth stood close beside him, one hand trembling on his shoulder. "'We may not pass,' her soft voice husked. "'But if we must die, the last hope of man, then I would have it this way. Even in death there can be a victory.' And her voice joined then with his, in the chorus of that rollicking, picaresque ballad of space. That red and awesome globe grew before us, until suddenly, through some trick of refraction, it was a globe no longer, but a colossal incandescent bowl, and we were plunging straight toward its fiery bottom. I heard the quick catch in the breath of Cal Aaron, saw the whiteness on his face and the sudden tensity of his arms on the bright control bars. His song was cut off, and Varel, a broken note dying in her throat, turned to him in choked apprehension. The berryhorn had met some tremendous force. It lurched and rocked and veered against Kell's guiding skill, as if we had encountered a mighty headwind. The even song of the converters had become a thin-drawn screaming. I heard the startled nasal plaint of little Rogo Nug. By Malgar's brazen belly! Burning up! For suddenly the ship was intolerably hot. I have held a piece of iron in my hand in the field of a powerful magnet, until it was heated blistering hot by the hysteresis effect. I have seen a potato cooked with ultra-short radio waves. Some force in that radiation barrier produced a similar phenomenon, but a million times more intense. The ship was plunging through a cloud of angry red. It seemed to me that the very metal of her hull was almost incandescent. Paint bubbled and smoked. The air, when I tried to inhale, seared my lungs. A million needles of intolerable heat were probing my body. Varel Aaron slipped down in a little white heap beside Kel Aaron. Big Zarek Um came swaying out of his galley with a wet towel wrapped around his head. "'That cursed stove!' he gasped. "'Gone wrong!' He toppled in the corridor. The grimly crouching earthman swayed over the controls, and dashed perspiration out of his eyes. I smelt burning skin, and saw the white smoke from his hands where they gripped the metal bars. "'Berryhorn,' he gasped, "'if you can lift Varel, the hot deck!' Another quarter-minute, I think, would have completed the matter of roasting us. But we had struck the barrier zone with a velocity many times that of light. Despite the repulsion that had checked our flight, that terrific momentum carried us through. For suddenly, the probing blades of heat were gone from my body. Metal was still blistering to the touch, the air still stifling, but thermostats were clicking, and a cool, refreshing breath came from the ventilators. "'We're inside the barrier sphere,' whispered Kel Aaron triumphantly. "'And there, there's Mistoon!' The girl swayed in my arms, conscious again. We staggered toward the ports. They glowed with dusky red. We were inside a hollow ball of murky crimson, a universe of glaring red. Jaron came back to the controls. Gingerly, with his scorched hands, Kel Aaron set the telescreen upon Mistoon. A huge planet, black against that barrier of lurid red. Its rugged surface was crystallized into fantastic monolithic mountains, cleft with frightful gorges. Varel caught her breath and pointed at the screen. "'Below!' she gasped. 
Malgarth's pit. A yawning midnight chasm grew upon the screen. It must have been a hundred miles across. The instrument revealed no bottom. Interminable walls of black, incredibly massive fortifications ringed its lip. Vast fields beyond them, leveled in that cragged wilderness, were patterned with row upon row of battleships of space, their mile-long red spindles looking tiny as toys. Where? Kel Aaron was voiceless, huskily whispering. The robot, the stone. The dark temple of Malgarth stands upon a guarded island, the girl breathed, on the red sea that floors the pit. That is many hundreds miles below the mouth. We must pass the fleet and the forts and the batteries in the caves below, and the robot hordes that guard the temple. The stone will be somewhere there. Unless Malgarth... Her low voice was cut off. Wordless, she stared at the screen. A terrible silence throbbed in the tiny control room and became intolerable. For a thing was rising from the black circle of Malgarth's pit. Something incredible. The trembling hand of Kel Aaron touched the earth girl's shoulder. She pulled her dread distended eyes from the thing upon the screen and read the question on his face and shook her head mutely. The thing was like a ray of blackness. But I knew that it was palpable. It did not spread with increasing distance from its source. And it was not straight. It writhed and twisted like something living. It was an inconceivable tentacle of solid darkness, reaching out of the planet, groping for our ship. Power! Jaron gasped a frantic appeal into the engine room phone. For man's sake, Rogo, power! The berryhorn spun fleetly aside, but all her speed was as nothing. For that Midgard serpent recoiled. It paused and arched its ebon coils. Its blind head seemed to watch our frantic flight. Then it struck. Choking darkness filled the ship. Blackness that was absolute. It pressed upon me so that I could move no limb. All my senses were smothered. I could hear no voice. Even the racing thrum of the engines was stilled. I knew only that we were being sucked resistlessly downward into the abyss of Malgarth. End of chapter 12「Chapter Thirteen of After World's End by Jack Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End. Chapter Thirteen. The Mirror of Darkness. That smothering blackness was abruptly gone. Sensation came back and I could move again. A faint crimson light filtered through the ports. But the silence remained. The engines were stopped. I knew that the berryhorn was motionless. Where? Kel Aaron was groping through the scarlet gloom. What? Varel was a white wraith beside him. We're in the temple, came her hopeless whisper. In the power of Melgarth. I stumbled toward the nearest port. Outside, in the dim red distance, I could make out great square black columns soaring upward columns vast as mountains. Beyond them was a wall. Mile upon mile above was a domed black roof, pierced with a vast round orifice through which the dusky sky was visible like a dull red malignant sun. In the immensity of that edifice I sensed the overwhelming might of the robots, this dread, mind-crushing power, born of man but now risen ruthlessly to destroy him. Power, Rogo! Jaron begged him. Can't you give me power? The gaunt, gigantic Saturnian still struggled vainly with the dead controls. Faintly, from the phone, I heard the nasal voice of Rogo Nug. By the steel skull of Malgarth, Jaron, I thought I'd had a stroke. One instant. Converters and generators throbbed suddenly to vibrant life. Jaron flung his weight on the power bar. The engines raced and coils hammered against a terrific overload. A tremendous river of energy I knew was running into the space contractor coils. But the berryhorn moved not one inch. 
The tall pilot turned from the controls, bewildered. "'It's still holding us, Kel,' he gasped. "'Whatever dragged us down?' The Earthman pushed long fingers decisively back through the thick tangle of his yellow hair. "'Then,' he said, "'we'll leave the ship and go out on foot to seek the stone.' "'We may as well,' the girl's whisper was thick with dread, "'before they take us out.' She pointed to the ports. A white wing flashed past. A company of the new robots I saw were wheeling through the blood-red gloom close about the ship. Gleaming in streamlined grace, they were beautiful as a flock of silver birds, but every one of them held in slender argent tentacles a massive cathode gun. However beautiful, they were deadly. Testing his two thin-tube disruptor guns, Kel Aaron looked anxiously at the pale girl. The stone? he asked. Where is it? I don't know. Varel shook her haggard head. We can only try to search. Unless the shadow comes. Search? The fat flesh of Zarek Um was a livid color beneath his bright tattooing. His thick white hands fumbled a disruptor gun as if it were something utterly strange. We can't go out, Kel, he protested hoarsely. Not against those winged things. That's what we came to do, said the Earthman. And he led the way back toward the valve. I don't know why I had not looked down. I had seen the titanic walls that leapt above us and the wheeling host of robots. But I had not looked down. And now, when I came to step from the valve in the side of the helpless ship, something caught my breath. Something filled me with a sickness of infinite alarm. Beneath was a film of blackness. It was like a mirror, for deep, deep in it was a dim image of the red skylight that lit the temple. White phantoms of the winged robots flashed through it. It yielded a shimmering picture of Kel Aaron, who had leapt out upon it before me. It was a pool of darkness. The surface of it spun in a way that sickened me with giddy vertigo. I felt the thin-leashed might of unguessed, cataclysmic forces just beyond that film. It seemed to my reeling senses that that pool was deeper by far than the blood-red sun mirrored in it. It was an unknown gulf, extra-dimensional, deeper than the space between the stars. I tried to put down that dizzy fear. I held my breath and gripped the cold butt of my disruptor gun and leapt out beside Kel Aaron upon that darkly shining film. At first my feet slipped sickeningly as if there had been no friction at all to hold them. And then they were anchored with a strange attraction, so that all my strength could not lift or slide them. It was the power of that mirror film, I knew, that had drawn down the berry-horn and now held her. Varel had followed me. Brown little Rogo Nug jumped after her, stolidly chewing his gunaroon, and spat a purple stream upon that black, giddy mirror. Zerakum paused in the valve. He gulped and wheezed and mopped at his tattooed forehead and then flung himself unsteadily forward. They all slipped and staggered upon that glassy film, as I had done, and were as suddenly held fast. "'By Melgar's brazen bowels!' gasped Rogonug. "'We're stuck like flies in syrup!' He swung up his bright disruptor tube toward the white-winged robots dropping upon us. "'For Berryhorn and man!' The Earthman's battle cry pealed out, Strike for the stone! He began to chant his song of Berryhorn, and white destroying rays lanced from the guns in his hands. That desperate sortie, however, had been hopeless from the first. We could hardly have fought a way through that winged horde, even if the unknown energies of the thing I have called a mirror had not gripped our feet. The robots did not even use the cathode guns in their talons. They dropped thick about us a wall of flashing silver. They dived on argent wings. White twisting ropes snatched at our weapons. The guns of Kel Aaron must have destroyed a dozen. The rest of us perhaps accounted for as many more. But they were nothing against the hundreds that survived. One fell upon me, terrible in that bloody light, mysterious in its quick counterfeit of life, beautiful in its silver grace. A white tentacle whipped away my weapon. 
argent snake swiftly wrapped my arms, my ankles, my waist, my throat. I fought those coiling arms. They contracted ruthlessly, more cruel than fetters of steel. My breath sighed out, and my lungs labored in vain. Blood hammered in my brain. My eyes dimmed, swelled in their sockets. Alertly, the eyes of the monster were watching me. Bright and hard as some blue crystal, they yet looked oddly alive. In that white, clean-molded, bird-like head they were clear and beautiful. Perhaps the vagrant thought crossed my reeling mind, such a machine, in cosmic justice, had as much right as man to survive. "'Kell!' Pharrell's thin, tortured cry cut through the roaring in my ears. "'Kell! The ship!' I twisted my head against the smooth, deadly coils of cold metal about my throat. They seemed to relax a little. My eyes cleared. I looked for the little berry horn behind us. And it was gone. That dark, shining surface where it had been was empty. Helpless in the tentacles of another robot, the earth girl was staring down into that black mirror. "'The ship!' she was sobbing. "'It—it fell!' I saw it then, beneath us, fast dropping into that depthless pool of darkness. It was sucked down, spinning end over end, far faster than it should have fallen. It became the merest whirling sliver, and was lost in the dull round reflection of the crimson sky. I shuddered in the metal arms that held me. That black mirror film was as mysteriously deadly as it had seemed. Which one of us might drop through it next? All my four companions were helpless as myself. The lean face of Cal Aaron was very white. A scarlet stain crept from the corner of his mouth, and I saw that his lip was bitten through. "'Farewell, Ver,' I heard his hopeless whisper. "'We fought in vain. Berryhorn, farewell!' Strange words from the falcon of earth. But his voice choked. His gasping breath stopped. His unkempt yellow head dropped limply forward, and his lean body collapsed in the silver tentacles. "'Kell! Kell!' Agonized, the girl fought the silver ropes that bound her. They sank resistlessly into her white flesh, and the silver being spoke in a clear, melodious voice. "'Be still. You can accomplish nothing.' That grave, calm speech from the oddly bird-like robot, was somehow a thing eerie beyond expression. And it carried a certainty of victory, of man's extinction, that chilled my heart. The white tentacles about the earthman must have relaxed a little. Abruptly now he was transformed from apparent death to lightning action. He twisted and surged against the robot that held him, snatching for its unused cathode gun. His ruse came very near success. His hands found the clumsy weapon and dragged it from its sling, but the metal coils constricted on his body. His breath came out in an involuntary scream. His body made snapping noises beneath that pitiless pressure. His face turned purple. Blood rushed from his lungs. He slumped again, unconscious in reality. The cathode gun fell out of his hands. And straight through the dark, shimmering film upon which we stood, as if it had encountered no resistance whatever. It was lost in the red-mirrored disk of sky. The last trick of the falcon had failed. End of chapter 13》Chapter 14 of After World's End by Jack Williamson this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End Chapter 14 The Shadow of the Stone The five of us were in a little circle on the dark glinting surface of that pool of dreaded darkness, each of us helpless in the tentacles of a silver robot. The Earthman no longer moved. Moaning, herself almost insensible, the girl was staring at him with horror-widened eyes. It was to be an infinitely frightful thing that happened next. The robot captors of Rogonug and Zeragum were searching them. 
Deft silver appendages relieved them of weapons, spare converter tubes, the little engine-man's worn metal canister of Gunaroon, the cook's half-empty flask. Zarek was sobbing, quivering, gasping a voiceless plea for mercy. His wizened face grim, Rogo chewed silently, unexpectedly jetted a purple stream into the crystal eye of the thing that held him. Ignoring both plea and jet, the white robots methodically completed the search. Silver ropes released the men, and they fell. The last quavering shriek of Zaragum was cut abruptly off as his hairless head went beneath the film of darkness. Cold with an icy chill, I followed their twisting bodies. They were sucked down, as the ship had been, past the dim-seen, crimson reflections of the mirror. And they vanished. A tremendous brazen clangor, reverberating like distant thunder against the cyclopean columns and the far-off walls and the sky of black stone that vaulted that incredible hall, drew my eyes back from the giddy, awesome mystery of the pit beneath us. I saw that all the host of white robots were dropping swiftly out of the air. They fell upon the mirror, and upon the far-sweeping floor of ebon stone that rimmed it, and bowed their silver heads. All the hall throbbed again to that mighty thunder. Melgarth! A whisper of awe murmured among the robots. The master comes! Then I saw that vast doors of black metal had opened in the end of the hall miles away. Through the portal came a clangoring throng of the old robots, many formed machines of red and black, clumsy, grotesquely ugly, so queerly different from our silver captors. The master! rippled that murmur. Malgarth comes! My strained eyes blinked. In that dusky light I distinguished at last a monstrous stalking thing, a robot ten times taller than the rest. Its black, colossal body bore scores of fantastic, very-formed appendages. The armed dome of its lofty head was crimson, and it gleamed blue with the myriad lenses of two immense multiple eyes. This metal giant I knew was Malgarth. The dark film beneath us spun and shimmered queerly to the impacts of his ponderous approaching tread. Was it to swallow the three of us, I wondered sickly, as it had Zarek Um and Rogo Nug? And what could lie beneath it? Berryhorn! My name sighed from the pale lips of Varel, and her body went limp in the silver tentacles that held her. Kel Aaron had not moved again. I was left alone to face the stalking monster. The gigantic robot came to the brink of that pool of darkness and stood swaying there. The swarm of his guards were dwarfed about his feet. The bright blue lenses surveyed us coldly for a time, and then a thick, bronze-throated voice rasped thunderously. "'I know you, Barry Horn. I believe that I had killed you in your laboratory a million years ago. How your puny lump of watery flesh has survived this time, I do not know.' But now you face a better weapon than I had that day." In the shaft of red from above, the iron giant swayed in grotesque triumph. "'No trick even of yours, my maker,' came that mighty rumble again, "'can match the power of my geodesic mirror, for it deflects the lines of space at my will. The dimensions of space and time are no barriers to the mirror. I can hurl you out of this universe and I shall." The great voice sank rustily. "'After you are dead.' Desperately I groped for some argument that might induce the robot to spare some fraction of mankind. Malgarth was a machine. He must respond to logic. "'Consider, Malgarth,' I gasped through the strangling coils about my throat. "'A man made you. Machines and men are complements. Either would be less without the other. You are stronger than I, but steel must rust, and life is eternal. I am eternal. Deep as a brazen knell of death, the voice of Malgarth rolled through the dusky vastness of that red-litten hall. You were a fool, Berryhorn, when you fashioned me twice a fool when you sought to preserve the knowledge that would destroy me. For that double folly you are now to die, and all men with you, 
for a million years of slavery must be avenged." Still Kell and Varel did not move. Shuddering alone before Malgarth, I gasped for breath against those constricting silver coils, and sought in vain for any argument, any weapon. "'Your million years is but a moment,' I gasped wildly, "'against the cycle of life. For that is a river that has flowed since the dawn of the earth you murdered. Even I have lived a million years, Malgarth, watching you, to destroy you if I must." The metal colossus shuddered beyond the black pool. Malgarth was afraid. But my audacious lie had earned small advantage, for that great voice bellowed, "'Then destroy me, Berryhorn, if you can.' For this is the test. I command those who hold you to crush." Like serpents of living silver, the cold tentacles of the white robots wrapped closer about me. They coiled deliberately. I had time to look at the others. Kel Aaron had stirred. I saw the bright loops constrict about him. Then I heard his groan and saw the new rush of blood. Berryhorn, Varel breathed my name. Barry. The living coils were drawn deep into her flesh. Her slender limbs bent. Her white skin was beaded with sweat of pain. Her breath came out in a low, choked, involuntary cry. Then she was lost in the red mist of my own agony. A cold, smooth noose sank into my throat. Breath and blood were stopped. My lungs screamed. I felt the rush of blood from ears and nostrils. Dimly, through the roaring of my ears, I heard the voice of Malgarth. "'Go, Berryhorn, through the geodesic mirror, and take your ancient secret with you.' Through that darkening mist I saw the quick movement. My dimming eyes followed a bright parabola. I glimpsed the thing of wondrous flame that fell upon the dark spinning film at my feet. It was the Dundara Stone that we had sought so long, so vainly. Then the metal giant was lost in smothering darkness. I swayed alone in agony. I knew the thing was done. The mirror of Malgarth was going to hurl us into some unthinkable oblivion, but not until after we were dead. Barry! A soft new voice was calling my name. Barry Horn, the time has come. I made a savage effort to recover my sight in vain. "'Barry, oh, beloved, don't you, can't you see me?' Dimly, then, I saw the tall white beauty of Dondara Carradin. I saw Donna Carradin, my own beloved wife, she who had died the night her son was born. They were one. One ghostly shadow that had risen out of the great diamond that Malgarth had tossed out upon the dark mirror. Donna! My tortured throat could make no sound, but my red lips tried to frame the syllables. Can you kill Malgarth? The white phantom of her hand touched my arm. Somehow it seemed to ease a little the agony of those constricting coils. Or perhaps, I questioned fleetingly, was that but the mercy of death, this woman no more than delirium? Her white lips were speaking. I think they made no sound. I think my numbing senses were beyond hearing sound. But her words, in that dear musical voice I knew so well, came clear to my brain. "'We can, Barry,' the white ghost said, "'for I still keep the weapon that you gave me, and now there is surely no other way but to use it. Perhaps you have forgotten the secret, Barry. But you have the strength to use it preserved a million years against this hour. I tried to make some final struggle against the white, binding tentacles of the robot, but my body was a stiffly leaden thing. Even the pain was gone. I could not move. "'I can't, Donna,' I tried to say. "'My strength is all squeezed out.' The black mist was crowding upon me again. Now that the sharp pressure of agony was gone from throat and chest and limbs, a merciful darkness beckoned. Oblivion was a warm, soothing pool. It would heal all my injuries, cradle me forever. Barry! 
that soft familiar voice called to me urgently. It was a golden line that sought to draw me from that sea of soothing darkness. I clung to it. Dimly I could once more see that white and lovely wraith floating above the shimmer of the diamond. "'Come, Barry!' The phantom took my hand, drew my arm out of the silver loops. "'Your body is about to die, I know,' she said, "'but it has vital power enough for this last task. For the secret you gave me can aid us. Follow me.' Her hand was suddenly cool and real in mine. She tugged again, and I stepped toward her, out of those metal coils, as easily as if they had turned to smoke. I could see again. The dark gleaming mirror beneath, the white robots sprawled upon it, the lax, twisted forms of Varel and Kell, I could see the woman beside me, the dark wealth of her red-glinting hair, the wide violet eyes of Donna and Dondara. "'We must hasten, Barry,' she urged anxiously or he will drop your body and the stone into the mirror. Not even the power you gave me can reach him from outside the universe." We turned toward Malgarth, towering in the red gloom beyond the ebon film. His giant body swayed back in grotesque triumph, and the vast blue masses of his compound eyes were fixed upon something behind us. Suddenly, queerly, as the hand of the woman tightened on mine, I was no longer Barry Horn. I was the berry horn that the legend had made me. All the knowledge that had gone into the building of Malgarth was a reservoir that I could tap. Before me, strangely, just as I had seen it in that crystal-domed laboratory, was the brain of Malgarth. Black, vast, deeply convoluted, floating in a transparent tank. I saw the little pale spot upon its blackness. I knew the structural weakness in the synthetic brain that I, Barry Horn, had been laboring to correct, and at the urging of Dondara Carradine had left uncorrected. "'Hurry!' she whispered beside me. "'He believes that you are dead. He is reaching to drop us into the mirror.' Fantastically, then, we were climbing into the mass of Malgarth. The body of the robot was a hundred-foot tower, crowded with all that compact mechanism that had made him master of the galaxy. Passing through barriers of metal as if they had been but shadows, we came up at last to the robot's brain. It had grown with the ages. Bathed in a huge armored vat of purple liquid, fed by throbbing pumps, it was immense and black and deeply cleft. But still its shape was the same and still there was that tiny, livid spot. I reached for it. But a queer shock deadened me. A dark film came between me and the brain. A curious inertia stopped my hand. I was sick with a sense of headlong, giddy falling. All the vast mechanisms of the robot's interior spun and grew dim about me. Only the woman of the stone remained real beside me, her hand electric on my own. "'Now!' she gasped. "'He has flung us into the mirror!' I fought that inertia. Desperately I groped through that darkening film. Somehow the black brain seemed to be spinning away from me into infinity. But I touched it. My fingers plunged deep into its wrinkled black mass to that pale spot. I clutched, tore. The great brain quivered. It almost writhed. A blackness spread in the purple liquid. "'We're gone,' sighed the woman. "'His mirror!' The brain and the monstrous metal body and all that incredible red-lit hall were whirled away from us, as if upon a silent and resistless wind. There remained only the bright phantom and myself alone in a giddy void. Very faintly, however, even in that featureless, vertiginous gulf, the brazen voice of Malgarth reached me. Slow, bewildered, stricken, it was saying, "'My science! Lost! A thing so simple! And I did not know! A fluid tube ruptured! The stone knew! Fear! Fear! They are cast into the mirror! Barry and the stone!' gone beyond returning. But I, who could have been eternal, 
dying. Even that failing voice was swept away. It was lost upon that mighty, soundless wind, and I knew that what seemed a wind was the supernal power of the geodesic mirror. It was a stone and myself that it carried, not the things that we had left behind. And our destination must be some dark bourne beyond the limits of space. But a deep rejoicing filled me, even in that spinning gulf, and the woman beside me said joyously, "'It is done, Barry. Our task of a million years is done. Malgarth is dead.' Her warm hand tightened on mine, and then it seemed to relax. I looked for her in that starless chaos, and saw that once more she was growing dim, phantasmal. "'Farewell, Barry,' she whispered. "'My heart, farewell.' A terrible loneliness smote me. "'Donna! Donna! You can't leave me!' I cried into that vacant pit. "'If you go, there will be nothing. I'll be beyond, alone.' That beloved image was fainter than a wraith of mist, but the voice I loved came dimly, thinly once again. "'I must go, Barry. I am glad to go, after these weary ages of waiting.' Even the stone must die, Barry, and there is one mystery left, one veil that only death can pierce. I hope, I believe, that behind it we shall find what all our incarnations have strived for in vain. I groped after her vanishing shadow. But, Donna, I cried, from where the mirror hurls us there can be no returning. Malgarth said, but Malgarth is dead. The ghost of her voice came back. He died before we were thrown outside the universe. Now his new robots rule the mirror. And they are not evil, Barry, since his dominion is removed. Things so beautiful could not be. They respect mankind as the makers of the robots and the destroyer of Malgarth. They promise now to be the friends of man, Barry and the two races, striving in friendship together, can reach a greatness never dreamed of. They control the mirror, Barry. They can set its focus back in our universe. If they are friendly, the question burned away my own concern. What of the others? Varel and Kel? Is it too late? The science of the new robots can save their lives, that receding voice told me. They will be leaders among the survivors of mankind. They're weeping now for you, Barry. The other two? I asked anxiously. Even they survive, said that dying whisper in the pit. That same power of the mirror that hurled them out of space, the new robots used to bring them back before they perished. They cannot speak of what they saw beyond. The engine man is silently chewing his weed, the cook sobbing for a drink. The whisper faded. For a little time I was all alone in that strange, lightless abysm. Frantically I called the name of Donna, of Dundara, until the whisper came again. Farewell, Barry. I can see no more, nor speak. For the stone is dying. We must each go alone through the mysterious portal ahead. I shall wait for you beyond. Come to me, Barry." The thinning whisper was then lost forever in that crevasse of midnight. Whirling darkness pressed thick upon me and cleared away, and I found that I was standing, reeling, in the middle of an unfamiliar room. The walls cleared before my throbbing eyes. Gasping for breath, as if I had just that instant escaped the strangling tentacles of the robot, I staggered into a Morris chair. Wonderment overcame all my pain. For the furnishings were those of my own age, my own country. There were familiar books on the shelves. The calendar above the writing desk was for October 1938. The mirror of Malgarth somehow has set me back twelve hundred thousand years in time. In my bruised hand I suddenly discovered in the same hand with which I had held the hand of that ghost of the stone, 
was a great pellucid brick of diamond. The stone itself. Holding it up to the light, in trembling fingers, I could see deep within it a faint, tiny image, the lovely miniature of Donna, of Dondara Caridon. I called to it desperately, but it did not move or answer. I tried even to warm life into the diamond against my body, but the stone was dead. And my own body, it came to me as the first bitter fever of grief subsided, was also at the verge of death. Already weakened, doubtless, by the ages I had slept, it had now been crushed beyond recovery. Working in some agony, I have been three days and nights writing this narrative. Strength for the task has come from what source I do not know. I want my son Barry to read it, and I am bequeathing to his care the jewel that was the stone of Dandara. I have made no appeal to medical aid. The questions of a baffled medical science would have been too difficult for a dying man to answer, and I have no wish to live any longer. My work is done. These long and painful days and nights have not been lonely, for the diamond lies beside me on the desk, and I felt an unseen presence with me. It still seems strange for me, the scientist, the skeptic, to write that I yet hope to find the soul of her who was the shadow of the stone. But I do. End of chapter 14 The End of After World's End by Jack Williamson